together we're on a series in the gospel of Mark and this week and next week are the last two parts of the series. After that we're going to go into a series called The Core and if if you're new to Alpine Bible Church it'll be especially important for you because it's going to talk about we're going to go through four weeks of shaping the identity of what our church is about. If you've been a part of ABC for a while it's good for us just to uh, refocus our minds on what God has uh, brought us together here to accomplish as a church family and what he desires for our lives and so uh, I would encourage you to, to be a part of that in the weeks ahead as we uh, look forward to what God has in store for us. But today we're talking about something significant that shapes our identity as a church family in the crucifix of Christ. And I just want to be honest in the beginning and saying, you know, I have thought about this. I have, you know, gone through this text over and over. I've just spent time just meditating on this passage. And uh, my, my heart knows no matter what I say this morning, it is going to grossly under describe um, what Jesus has done for you in this passage. Uh, whatever degree you've ever been loved, been forgiven, experienced grace, mercy, all of that, um, there is no deeper place that you can um, re- experience it than, than the cross of Christ. And so I feel like no matter how descriptive and imaginative I, I make this passage this morning, it's never going to do justice in what Jesus has done for us. The only way that truly happens, I think, is the Spirit of God just illuminates it in, in our heart. And so I, I hope in all of this passage that the thing that we find uh, most inclined to do is really just worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And we know in following the progression, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know in following the progression that Jesus has gone into Jerusalem and he is about to meet the end of his life. And I'm just going to tell you, if you're ever prone to lie in your life, the time to just, you know, let the cat out of the bag is when it's going to cost you, okay? (laughs) I don't want you to lie ever, but if you do, if it's really going to be painful, then just stop, okay? And, And with Jesus... Uh, here he is at the end of his life, and, and it, it is apparent that he is about to to give up his life in these final moments. And so, Jesus, if you're ever going to let the cat out of the bag, tell us you've just been leading us astray, that, that you are not who you're claiming to be. Now is the time to do it. But rather than do that, Jesus doubles down on his identity. In fact, I wouldn't say he just doubles down. He more triples down in, in, in who he is. And Mark chapter 15, is, we're going to look at the majority of that. We're actually going to pick up at the end of chapter 14. But at the end of 14, Jesus starts to to grab these identities of who he is again. He uses these titles going to the cross for us to just uh, double down on the thought of who he is and why he's come to this world. And so in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 61, you see these opening comments coming from the high priest. We're at this passage of scripture where Jesus has been, uh, he's been betrayed by Judas. He was captured in the garden of Gethsemane. He's brought before the religious leaders and he's placed on trial. And it says this, but he kept silent and did not answer. And the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, tearing his clothes. The high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Uh, during Jesus' day, it was customary when there was blasphemy that they would tear the robes and demonstration of this. is a great way to make your mama mad about the new clothes she just bought you that you just ripped up. But they, as a demonstration of this blasphemy that took place, the high priest tears his robes. And the reason he tears his robes is because the comment Jesus made in verse 62. Now, sometimes in the context of our culture, we don't always understand exactly what's being stated within the passage. But whatever it was, it was so extreme that it caused the high priest to just tear his clothes. 
And he's walking around naked. I don't know if he's doing that or not, but, but he tears his clothes. And, and the statement Jesus makes is rich in, in Jewish theology. And this is where Jesus is identifying for us once again exactly who he is and why we should be placing our faith in him. And, and two of the phrases that he uses in verse 62 is where Jesus expresses it. He says, I am, and he uses this phrase, the son of man. The son of man is a phrase that we've talked about before, I think in week three of this series together. It is the, the most used term that Jesus has identified himself with. Other people use terms to describe Christ, but the term Jesus preferred above all others was this phrase, son of man. Son of man comes from Daniel chapter seven, where it co- talks about the son of man coming before the ancient of days. And in describing the son of man in Daniel chapter seven, it attributes characteristics to the son of man that only deity could possess. His ruling and reigning for all of eternity. By the way, if you study that passage, Daniel chapter seven, where it describes the ancient of days and the son of man, uh, the ancient of days is attributed to Jesus in revelation. The same description for, for, um, the ancient of days in Daniel seven is described of Jesus in, in revelation. But what you see Jesus doing in this passage is he's shaping the identity of who he is again, the son of man, one of eternal authority, one who would be ruling and reigning. And so if you want to study a little bit more, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that last sermon series that we did on this in this section. I think it was week three and we talked about it. But Jesus also uses this other identity, this statement, the I am. The I am is a popular statement in the, in the gospel of John. In fact, a lot of the gospel of John centers around these, this phrase of Jesus, this I am. Jesus refers to himself as the I am in John eight fifty eight, John ten thirty. This I am goes all the way back to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter three. In the Greek, it's ego I me. Here in, in the Old Testament where Jesus is making this allusion, it's the phrase Yahweh. And so Jesus, when he identifies himself, he's saying that I am the I am. And in Israel's history, they would have known exactly where this phrase came from. Because this is where the f- first place God gives himself a specific name in scripture to identify who he is. In Exodus chapter 3 and and verse 14, Moses is called to go to Egypt to declare to Pharaoh to let the slaves, the Jewish people, free. And when Moses is given this calling, he says to God, God, who shall I say to them is sending me? And God says, say to them, I am which I am has sent you. Jesus is identifying himself as this I am. This name of God is he exists, therefore he exists. And not only points to the eternal nature of God, but the sustaining force of who God is. What I mean by that is everything in creation, everything that was created in this world, including yourself, finds the purpose for its existence outside of itself. But when it comes to God, the purpose For his existence is found within himself. Because he is the sustaining one. Everything created in this world is intended for God's glory. You look at creation and and you can just marvel at its magnificence on on the precipice of the Grand Canyon. Looking at the beach, the birth of a child. Watching your favorite sports team and the athletes doing such incredible things. Go Patriots, right? I like how I sneak that in. I'll take your jokes later. We love to be captivated with things that provoke us to worship. But you know, oftentimes we sell it short. We look at the object of itself as if it's the end. 
But rather, everything designed its purpose and intentions find its purpose outside of itself. You were created for a glory greater than you, but for God. And when God defines himself, though, he calls himself the I am. He is the self-existent one, the self-sustaining one. But when Jesus identifies himself as the I am, he's not only pointing to the identity of, of the self-existent one, self-sustaining one. I think he's also rooting it himself in what exactly the I am represents to Israel historically. Because when Moses asks God, who do I say is sending him? And he's told, the, the answer is, tell them I am has sent you. That for Israel, the identity of the I am is one who takes them from bondage as slaves to freedom in him. And when Jesus goes to the cross, the phrase that he desires for us to know about him is the one who takes us from bondage in sin and freedom in him. So Jesus uses this phrase, both the son of man, the eternal ruling one, and the I am, the the God who, who has created us for his glory to bring us out of slavery into freedom in him for all of eternity. Jesus identifies himself as God. When you read about it in the Old Testament, whenever you read the word Lord in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D, when all of it is capitalized, sometimes it's written in lowercase, but when every letter is capitalized, it's identifying Lord as in Yahweh, Yah I am. And so in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, this is what it says. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, Yahweh or Yehovah. This word Yehovah and Yahweh are actually the same word. Sometimes we use the word Yehovah and we probably even shouldn't. We should just always say Yahweh because it'll save confusion. But what happened when, when the word Yahweh uh, was brought into other languages, when it got to the Germanic languages, this, this Y, they had no Y in their language. So they had to replace the Y with the J because it's the closest pronunciation. And the W became a V. So the Hebrews would spell it Y-H-W-H. And they actually don't even really know how it was pronounced. To the Hebrews, it was so sacred, they wouldn't even utter, utter that name. They didn't want to blaspheme the name. So rather than utter the name, they just wrote it in consonants. And, and some people believe that they couldn't even remember how it was pronounced because no one wanted to utter the name of God. And so we would write it, Y-H-W-H. And over time, we introduced the vowels into that name so we could pronounce it Yahweh. But when it went to uh, Germanic languages, they replaced the Y with a J and the W with a V. And so it was pronounced Yehovah. But it's the same word, Yahweh, Yehovah. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, all capitalized, Lord, and my servant who I am chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God, Elohim, formed. So in the Old Testament, there was this generic word for God. In fact, if you followed a false God, they would just refer to that as Elohim. Rulers, judges could sometimes be referred to as Elohims or God himself. But when God gave himself this sacred name, they knew that there was only one God like this. There was only one God that existed. Israel was monotheistic. All other gods were just false gods. They were idols. And so Isaiah 43 verses 10 and 11, it tells us that you're my witnesses of the Yahweh. There was no God ever formed and there will be no God that ever exists. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, the Shema, which Israel would recite to themselves in the morning and in the evening, Shema Israel, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so there is only one God and, and it is Yahweh who is the Elohim. 
And so when Jesus identifies himself this way, Israel being a monotheistic society, only believing and worshiping in one God, saw this as blasphemy and the high priest tears his robe and they desired to kill Jesus, but yet they can't bring the execution against Christ. Rome had to do it. And so Pilate, uh, Pilate is brought in by the high priest and the religious leaders in order to execute Jesus. And that's where Jesus gives us his third title. Because it starts in Mark chapter 15. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, it is as you say. Jesus avoided this title throughout his ministry. Because there were so many misconceptions as to what this represented. Israel's mind was completely on the geopolitical ruling and reigning on this earth physically. And so rather than use that phrase, Jesus preferred the phrase son of man, which was rich in theology. And they could get a better grasp of who he was. But here in this passage, Jesus now assumes the title. He never verbally says the title, I am the king of the Jews, but he assumes it based on what Pilate says. And then you see within the text of Mark chapter 15, Pilate wrestling with this identity. And can I tell you, as this story begins to unfold, there's a place within the story that I believe God wants you to connect to it in such a way that, that your own heart wrestles with the identity of Jesus. That you don't just remain indifferent to what's being discussed here in the scripture, but that your soul is provoked to respond. You're going to see within the context of the story, the crowds that surround Jesus, Pilate that's there with the crowds, all of them being persuaded to, to not turn to Christ, but rather follow after the religious leaders because of the authority that they're carrying. How dangerous that becomes for us. It says this in Mark chapter 15, verse 6. Now, after the feast, he used to release, talking about Pilate, he used to release from them any one prisoner whom they requested. And the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. So Pilate is thinking to himself, I mean, it's obvious that Jesus doesn't deserve death, but he's afraid of what the religious leaders are doing and the uprising it's creating. And so Pilate does what he thinks is a no-brainer. I'm going to get myself out of this position. I'm going to bring a murderer and I'm going to bring Jesus. And I'm going to give him a choice because they always get somebody set free at this time of the year. So you can choose the murderer or you can choose Jesus. The story goes on in verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him who, who you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. 
Here within the context of the story, you see the indifference. The crowd, not necessarily cheering for Jesus' crucifixion until the religious leaders want him to do so. The same thing with Pilate. It's as if in their minds right now, their, their interest is more in what makes them popular. I mean, we don't, we're sort of indifferent. The religious leaders have good reason for doing what they want to do. So let's just follow them blindly. Crucify Jesus. And in the context of the story, you're introduced to an individual that sort of vanishes from history after this event. Barabbas. And what you know about Barabbas is that he is a murderer. And so you see from the very beginning, he's, he's not that great of a guy. Probably not one you want to hang out with in the back alley. Three months ago, he may have been a part of Alpine Bible Church when it was a scary building. <laughs> but Barabbas. In the NIV translation of this, <coughs> this story, you see in the Gospel of Matthew, when it talks about Barabbas, it refers to him not just by the name Barabbas, but his full name. It says, so when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which one do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas? Or Jesus who was called the Messiah? And this is the crux of the story where they don't want you to remain indifferent to what's taking place here because Jesus Barabbas represents something. It actually represents you. Now, I know that the, the kick within our nature is to say, wait a minute, I'm no murderer, right? And probably not. It's likely most of us, if not all of us, have killed somebody here. Jesus Barabbas is a reminder to all of us back in Jesus' sermon on the mount when he said to us in, in Matthew chapter 5, he who has had anger in his heart has committed murder. That yes, the physical act in our lives may not have been conducted by your hands. But the seed of what produces that is anger and that rests within all of us. And so within all of our souls, we need the healing hand of Christ within us. Because when you study the name Jesus Barabbas, which is why I think the NIV text gives us the full name within this passage. His name literally means of our father's. And so what it's talking about with Jesus is salvation. And so what it's saying to us is they're trusting in, they have a choice here, to, to trust in what's, what's been represented in their fathers or the saving Messiah who has come. What will you follow? You go with what is. Trust with what's been handed down to you from man. Or let go and trust in Christ. And you see in the indifference of this crowd who they choose. And Jesus Barabbas rather than Jesus Christ. You think of being Barabbas that morning. In Rome, you didn't stay on death row for several years. Once you committed a crime, it was just days, if not moments, before you were crucified. And Barabbas that morning woke up a guilty man having no hope, thinking he would lead him, it would lead himself to the cross, that he would be the one that was crucified between the two thieves. And yet now he finds himself being freed by Jesus. God the Father is about to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that Barabbas could be treated like Jesus. So what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that when God looks at you, you are clothed in the purity that is in Christ. 
And so the context of this story as it leads us to the cross is to provoke our hearts to respond in a way to recognize that what Jesus is doing here is more than just the rescuing of Barabbas, but he is the representation of all of us. And he willingly goes. The story unfolds, verse 22, that Jesus finds himself on the cross. It says, then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated the place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves and cast lots for, they, for them to decide which or what each man should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews on the top of his cross. In Jewish customer history, 6 a.m. was the start of the day. And so the third hour means it's now 9 a.m. in which Jesus is crucified. Who cares? (laughs) Why does Mark tell you that? You think of everything that's happening right now and how this is uh, the most important event in all of history and Mark's more interested in his watch than he is in the crucifixion. Why? It's kind of a bizarre thing. Jesus being crucified. Hey guys, what time is it? 9 a.m. Let's write that down. Why 9 a.m.? I think what Mark's beginning to help us recognize is that the crucifixion of Christ was never out of the control of God. In fact, this moment was divinely designed. It wasn't just a moment of happenstance. And the reason I say that is because for almost 2,000 years now, Israel has had the temple. Before that, they had the tabernacle. And every day at the tabernacle or the temple, there was a perpetual sacrifice that took place. And that perpetual sacrifice happened twice during the day. Every day at the same time, a lamb was sacrificed. In fact, that, that time was 9 a.m. At 9 a.m., a priest would grab a chauffeur. He would go into this niche in the temple. And as he stood in that niche, he would blow this horn, and that sound would echo throughout the valley of Jerusalem. And all of Israel would know that at the end of the sound of this horn... That a priest stood ready upon the altar of sacrifice with a knife in hand held to the throat of a lamb. When the sound would end, the priest would cut the throat of the lamb and blood would flow. And to Israel, this was a solemn moment. But it was also a moment in quietness that they would recognize God, remember your promise. To Abraham. Remember, from the time of Abraham, God has promised his people, through you all nations would be blessed. You know, in our culture today, we don't like to talk about sin. Life's all about you and we're supposed to be happy. And, and, and honestly, it's not really healing for the heart because Jesus gives you a place to actually do something with it. Just sweeping under the rug is not good. That's not healthy. But Jesus gives us a place to deal with it. In all of Israel, throughout the time of the temple, when they would see blood flowing from this temple, that happened every day. 
It was a reminder of ultimately one who would come as a sacrifice for all of their sins. And so when Jesus is dying exactly at 9 a.m., they hear the sound of the horn echoing out as Jesus' hands stand wide open, ready to receive his crucifix on the cross. And Jesus is nailed. It's not an accident. Jesus knew this moment. His entire life was about his death. And it even began in Genesis chapter 3, telling us through the seed of a woman, not through the seed of a man, through the seed of a woman, that promise would come. And then in Mark chapter 15, or excuse me, it should say chapter 15, verse 33, it says this, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling out for Elijah. Some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, but it, it, it put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus in this passage gives this cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gives a statement from uh, Psalm chapter 22. Remember, we've said together that that what happens in in, in the New Testament is, is a lot of revealing of what took place in the Old Testament. And Jesus gives this quote from Psalm chapter 22. And during the life of Jesus, it was common for Jews to have the entire Old Testament memorized. And so when Jesus is giving this quote from Psalm chapter 22, he isn't just saying focus on this statement. He's bringing to life all of Psalm chapter 22 because in the Jewish mind, they would have been able to recite and memorize exactly what this Psalm had said. And when you read through the Psalm chapter 22, you see this Psalm describing a suffering servant. Exactly what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross. It says in verse seven and verse 12 that he's being surrounded uh, by, by his enemies. You get to the end of the, of the psalm, you see the one that's being uh, maligned against, the one that's being persecuted and crucified. He, he's the one that comes back in verse 26, 27 to the end of the psalm in victory. But in verse 6, something interesting stated there. And Jesus is talking about being forsaken. It says that he's not even a man, but he's a worm. When you study Israel's history as it relates to the worm, the worm was significant to them. Because the worm is what they use to help decorate their temple. They would take this worm, they would put it within the bucket, and they would crush it. And that worm provided the dye for which they would stain the drapes that hung in the temple. This dark red. And Jesus, in relating to this psalm, is identifying that he himself is being crushed, that his blood is being poured out for us, that it's, it's not by happenstance, but it's intentional that at these very hours Jesus has given his life and everything that's been done in Israel's history was a foreshadowing of everything Jesus would ultimately fulfill for us. And so at 9 a.m. he's crucified and he's crushed. I think it might even be the idea that Isaiah in chapter 1 verse 18 said, uh, had in mind when he said, though your sins are red like crimson, color of the worm, it shall be white as wool. And it tells us the hours again when Jesus is crucified. 
And it's interesting when you go back in history, the sixth hour when darkness falls on this land, they, there's actually journal entries. There's a couple of journal entries during this particular time in history that record uh, from Africa that darkness was over the land during this day. In the ninth hour, Jesus gives up his life. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathes his last. You know, it's interesting, the 9 a.m., the third hour, the priest would go into the temple, he would blow the horn, and they would kill the lamb, sacrifice the lamb. That perpetual sacrifice didn't just happen at 9 a.m., but it also happened again at 3 p.m. And the ninth hour for the Jews would be 3 p.m. It's nine hours past 6 a.m. And Jesus, again, by no accident, is giving his life as a sacrifice. He does it when he's being crucified. And he does it when his life is given for the sacrifice of sins. But, but even on top of that, in, in Israel's history, during the Passover celebration, they would begin the Passover celebration where the lambs would be sacrificed for the temple. Lamb after lamb would go into the temple for sacrifice between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. I mean, blood would be flowing from this temple. And Jesus is giving his life at not only the exact hour of the perpetual sacrifice, but the exact hour of the Passover lamb when the sacrifices would begin. There's no accident. And then John 19, verse 30, John records a little bit more detail in Jesus' crucifixion, but he says here, he said, Jesus said, to Telestai, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When Jesus uses this phrase, I think it's very intentional in what he's accomplishing, giving his life. Remember, he uses the phrase, I am, to identify who he is. Just as Israel was freed from slavery, so we would be freed from sin in Christ to enjoy that relationship with him for all of eternity. And Jesus uses this phrase, tetelestai, not as any accident. That phrase, tetelestai, is what was used when they would purchase a slave from the slave market. That's what would be stamped on the receipt when a slave was bought. It's what Jesus places on your life when you trust in him, that you have been purchased for his purpose as he has paid for your sin on the cross. And Jesus uses this phrase, paid in full, to telestai. And the sound of the ram horn echoes throughout the land. Could you imagine how eerie this moment would have been? You see Jesus being crucified, who John the Baptist has proclaimed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world at the exact moment the horn blows, Jesus is crucified. In the exact moment Jesus gives up his life, the horn blows again. And at that moment when they're supposed to be offering this Passover land for sacrifice in the temple, the temple is just ripped into. No wonder the soldier at the cross says he truly was the Son of God. And people ask the question, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, where did he go for those three days? In the 12th century, this teaching started to emerge that said Jesus went to hell for those three days, right? And where else would he go? Because he, he had to die for our sins. But I, I want you to know <clears throat> that is not biblical or correct. When Jesus died for your sins, the payment for your sins, Jesus owed Satan and hell nothing. The payment that he made was to the Father. On behalf of you. 
And so when Jesus made that payment, that's why it says to tell us I paid in full. There was nothing else to make payment on. Jesus paid for it all on the cross. You want to really know what hell is? Hell isn't a location. Or let me say it like this. Heaven isn't a location. You know what makes heaven heaven? It's the presence of Jesus. Wherever Jesus is. God created you for that relationship with him for all of eternity. When Jesus was on the cross, he experienced connected relationship with the Father for all of eternity. And yet in this moment, I don't, theologians don't even know how this happens. But he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so if heaven's all about experiencing the joy, the presence of God for all of eternity and what that represents, if Jesus is separated from the Father, as Jesus hangs on the cross, he is experiencing hell on earth. And Jesus does that for you. And so this word for tetelestai, paid in full, is for us to understand exactly what Jesus has accomplished for us. And guys, this is why we say, this is why we say, you can do nothing to earn your salvation. And this is why we say, it's an insult, an insult to God to even suggest that. I mean, Galatians, the end of Galatians chapter 2 says that to us. For righteousness could be achieved through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Because there's nothing more that you can add to what Jesus has already done for you. Now, now here's, here's the rebuttal to that. Because people will look at that statement and they'll be like, well, what, what keeps somebody from living sinfully? They need a bunch of rules, right? Can I tell you, if your presentation of the gospel is so grace-heavy that people ask that question, that puts you in good company. Because Paul defends that very statement in Romans chapter 6. What shall we do then? And he proposes that question. Why wouldn't we live like hell on earth? And if Jesus paid for all, let's just say his grace covers us and do what we want. And the answer is, you would never do that. Why? Because you see the love that Christ has poured out for you. Why would you respond shamefully to him? And that, what provokes you in your heart in seeing this is to love in response and to worship in response and to draw near to him in response. Because he's already paid for it, for you. And so he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, God gives us a a place just as a Passover lamb was sacrificed that you could apply the blood of the lamb to your life. Now Jesus has been sacrificed for sin and and for you to embrace what Christ has done and and to respond to that and love just as he has loved you. It's not because you're made to do it. It's not because anything, anyone's ruling over you with an iron fist. It's because Christ has set you free. Finally, that freedom has been expressed in the, in the payment that has been pay, paid fully on, on your behalf. And it tells us the veil was torn. This veil was 20 feet wide, four inches thick. And you saw in the beginning when the high priest looked at the blasphemy of Jesus and he ripped his, he ripped his shirt to declare the blasphemy. And some have compared the ripping of this veil, God's ripping to declare the blasphemy of what, what's happened to Jesus in his crucifixion. But at the same time, what it's demonstrating to us is the end of the sacrificial system because Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice and a ripping of the, of the divide that exists between us and God because of sin. It's no longer there because of Jesus. So now in this moment, our faith 
wrestling event. It's death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. So how do you respond? And this is the most important moment in all of history. And so the way you respond is significant. Not to just be indifferent like the crowd around Barabbas. With a heart of worship, looking at at what Christ has done. Not, Not just something that just randomly happens, but how intentional this has become. I mean, you think in the declaration of all of the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3, the promising of of Jesus who was to come, all the prophetic statements made about Jesus to the detail of his death, all of the worship that's been established from the temple and the law and the high priest, everything pointing to Jesus. That's why Jesus comes and he says all of these things. I am the temple. Destroy the temple in three days. I will rebuild it. He is the one who fulfills the law. He did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Hebrews tells us that he is our high priest. That Jesus is all of these things culminating in, in him, that, that this served an entire purpose, that the whole picture is being painted in these moments. That's what, exactly what Colossians chapter 2 and verse 17 tells us, that, that the temple and the Sabbath, that Jesus is the Sabbath, that, that all of it was, was created for us to see holistically Christ in everything. Colossians chapter 2 verse 17 tells us, don't, don't put the, the, the shadow of, of the, the new moon and the festivals and the, and the Sabbath, uh, they, they were just shadows in comparison to who Christ is. But all of it finds a f- fulfillment in Jesus. In fact, after Jesus' resurrection, it tells us that Jesus is walking on the road and he's walking on these, these two strangers on the road to Emmaus and and Jesus starts to teach them about who he is and the way that he wants them to see the significance of this moment. He ties all of the Old Testament to him. And it says this, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. He's saying everything, everything is about me. 9 a.m., 3 p.m., all of it had a purpose. It's about me. Why? So you don't miss the significance of this moment and how your soul is to respond and and understanding what God has done for you that you can experience eternal relationship with him starting now and forever. I try to think of a way to tie my heart to this this week. As I thought, you know, I just kept the weight of grossly under-communicating what happens there was just on me. I'm thinking, man, what's, apart from the cross of Christ, what's the most significant thing I've experienced in my life? You know, I thought of the marriage is good. My wife just had to go out for a minute. So wedding was good. Tell her I told you that, okay? Um, that, that was a monumental moment in my life. But one of the moments that probably scared me as much as I enjoyed was the birth of our first child. Um, when, when Grayson was born, I remember there became a moment in that room. Stace and I were just there by ourselves. You know, we, we've lived in Utah for uh, 12 years away from family. So we're there for the, your first child and you're like a deer in headlights when that's happening. <laughs> and, and so I remember we're in the hospital. All of a sudden there's panic that sits in the room and it's not between her and I, it's between the medical staff. It's like, oh crud, you guys do this for a living. So if you're, if you're panicking, we're in trouble, right? And uh, it's funny as my, 
my mom's a nurse, my, dad's, uh, my stepdad's an obstetrician, so it's not like, you know, this is nothing I'm not unfamiliar with in my life, but, but we're there in this room, they start to panic, and I can see it's, it's amping up, because they're trying to hurry up and get Stacy into the room to uh, surgically remove the kid and, and get Grayson out uh, as quickly as possible. And I remember I just grabbed one of the medical doctors as they were panicking. I pulled him to him like, listen, dude, <laughs> stop freaking out, man. <laughs> this is not going to go. I'm trying to not let my wife see this, but I'm like, you just better calm down. You know, just threaten life because this is, this is a serious moment. I, I don't want everybody just to stress out, but I just want to, <laughs> whatever needs to happen, let's happen. Let's do it without, without freaking everybody out. Okay. And, and we get in there and they take Grayson out and when they pull him out, he's got this huge, um, blood blister on the back of his head because of trauma that he's had. And they're worried that that, that blood has, has gone into his brain because I guess a, a baby's blood doesn't coagulate as fast as they would want it to. And they feel like it can pierce into the skull because the skull's soft. And they're talking about ICU and how traumatic that was. And so we're in this moment. It's so stressful. And, they, and they, they're taking him to ICU and they want to test him out. And it turns out everything was okay. I can remember after going through all that turmoil, just sitting there in that moment, just resting in it, right? All that anticipation, all of that buildup, all of that putting cribs together and hating Ikea for how many steps they involve. And then you finally have the moment. You just rest. And at the same time, you're resting, you realize that this moment is so special because it's also placed on your life a bigger calling. It's no longer, no longer am, I, am I just a husband, I'm a... I'm a father. And so you, you feel not just the weight, but the joy of that responsibility, right? How precious it is. I think as best as I can relate it, that's a lot of what happens around the cross of Christ. You can imagine Peter, James, and John, they have all these hopes with, with Jesus, and now they're seeing it go down the toilet. They're like, man, he's, he's being crushed. All the dreams, it's going away. What's happening? This tense moment, freaking out. And Jesus is resurrected. And now they see how the whole picture fits together. This wasn't an accident. This is what he intended from the beginning. That no matter what this world holds and no matter how difficult it may seem, God's working it all out. He's holding me with him. And this is why you can believe every promise that Christ gives you in scripture because he has masterfully worked out his promises from the beginning to bring you to this moment of trusting in him. And this is what I love about Jesus when he's declaring who he is throughout scripture. In all of the identities he says about himself, he is, he is temple, he is priest, he is law, he is true Israel. One of my favorites is that he is Sabbath. So the word for Sabbath is rest. And when Jesus came in Matthew chapter 11, he says to the, the people that are being oppressed by religion, he says to them, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Guys, can I tell you, Jesus isn't just one more thing you add to your week. It's not the extra thing you have to put on that finally just breaks the back of all the things you have to accomplish this week. He is rest itself. 
It's why Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, listen to this. This is a good verse. You can memorize this when you walk out and you think about the cross of Christ. It says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Well, you know what it means to worship Jesus. I know the Christian life isn't easy because people can malign you for following after Christ. But let me tell you what it is. It's peace. And when you come in this morning to worship God, if there's something that you should experience, of all the things I could think about how to describe this cross, love and grace and forgiveness, all those things are good. But man, one of the things that we discover in it all is peace. Genesis 3, when sin into the world, the things that they, they lose, peace. But when Jesus lays down his life for you, the thing that he brings into your life and relationship with him. It's peace. So when you look at Christ, if you're seeing it as something else you've got to put on the list of things you've got to do this week, if, 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 if it becomes about a task rather than about resting in him, can I tell you you're doing it wrong? Because what Jesus desires for your soul, it's peace. Do you know why your soul can rest? To tell us die. To tell us die. It's been paid in full. When, when you come before God, it's not trying to impress Him with all these things that you have to offer. What Jesus has provided for you is a place to come to Him and rest. Say, God, there, there is nothing more I can do to bring you any more glory than the glory that you possess. But what you've done in that glory is providing a place for me to come unto you because of what you've done for me so that I can rest in your identity for what you have accomplished for me on the cross, Barabbas. Jesus became Barabbas that Barabbas could become Jesus. Why? So that the peace of Christ could rule our hearts. Because when it comes to worship this morning, Whatever turmoils in your soul, whatever struggles you face, I, I, I hope Jesus is one of those stressors. But rather a place to rest, a place to hope, a place to see that He has orchestrated it all for you, so you can be comfortable in that relationship in Him. And understanding that rest and the joy of that rest, there's also a higher calling you have opportunity to share with this world. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.